it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajagopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers online, in-store, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Shri and Peter. Welcome everyone to another episode of the CPG Guys. And today you'll notice it's the CPG Guy. That's because Peter couldn't make it with another business meeting. But I promise you, this episode is going to be equally humorous, and we have an amazing special guest that we'll get to in just a minute. But before we start, just a reminder to our audience, way back in October, we ran a series that included something you asked us for, which was all about e-commerce profitability, where we had five episodes. We'd love for you to check it out. Tell us what you think about it and what's the next thing you want to hear from us. We dove into retail media and how that's accounted on the PL. We got into trade rates and we just hit up every single item of the PL. We left you with a pro forma PL that you can use to compare your Amazon PL, which is often called as more dilutive, versus your national um, PL from a customer perspective. While you're at it, we want to thank you for the love you've shown us and how fast our audience has grown. Please do go to Apple Podcasts and rate us on tinyurl.com slash Apple CPG podcast. Now let's welcome our special guest, Andrew. Welcome to the show. I know you've been listening to us and I've been looking forward to this episode because we're going to talk all things data, forecasts, hopefully predictions, as well as what really happened in 2020 and 2021. So I can't wait here to talk to you, but could you explain to our audience what you do? Yeah, thanks, Shree, for having me. First of all, I'm really excited to be here. Um, so I have been in market research, uh, really the duration of my career. Um, I'm currently the principal analyst covering retail and e-commerce at eMarketer. Um, I began my career at uh, the NPD group. Um, and actually, that's where I kind of cut my teeth in the CPG space. Uh, my first few clients were Kraft Foods and uh, McNeil Nutritionals within uh, Johnson's and Johnson & Johnson. Um, then the... The next segment of my career was at Comscore, which is where I really got into a deep analysis of digital consumer behavior, uh, beginning with e-commerce, but really following the transition of uh, digital media and its growth into video, mobile, all of those things, and then uh, quite a bit of digital advertising research, uh, much of which we did for uh, CPG brands like P&G and Kellogg's. Um, and then the last few years, I've, I've been at eMarketer. Um, so my, my first two stints in my career were, were really at uh, traditional market research companies. Um, now here at eMarketer, which is also a market research company of sorts, uh, but really we kind of cut across the whole landscape and we work with all the other uh, third-party researchers. Um, so it gives me a much more broad and diverse view of all of the data and insights that are being produced around the industry um, as they pertain to marketing, advertising, and commerce. So Andrew, the first thing I'll do is I want to thank you and for something you probably don't know. When I first moved myself and my career from the brick and mortar world on the dollar drug and convenience channel at Frito over to starting up and launching e-commerce for them, the first thing somebody gave me a piece of advice from uh, one of the brands, maybe Tostitos or Lay's was the, your best ally in this journey to write a strategy is going to be e-marketer. And I ended up buying a subscription to it. And the amount of data I got from that and insights I got from my e-marketer subscription, when I got to Johnson & Johnson as the VP of Ecom there, the first question I asked was, do we have an e-marketer subscription? And when I got over to Revlon, 
it was therefore the first question because I got into Revlon May 2019 and we were just starting to write a strap plan. I'm like, we're not doing this without e-marketer insights. So that's how powerful I feel you guys are in the industry. And that's why we've really been looking forward to hosting you on the show. So let's start by asking you a very simple question, Andrew. MPD, Comscore, eMarketer. You're a true, in my box, you're a true legitimate CPG, retail and brand researcher and senior analyst. Take us through your career journey of being an industry expert on knowledge and how different is eMarketer versus Comscore or MPD? Yeah, so it's it's interesting uh, the evolution. Um, so it, at NPD, I started my career really understanding consumer behavior more broadly. Um, we were looking at data about how people actually ate. What did they um, eat over the course of a day? Through and we got this data through diary data. Um, you know how many annual eatings per capita? That was a big metric we looked at back then. Um, For our users, Andrew, could you explain what diary data is? Yeah, I mean, you have a panel of people who sign up uh, to conduct research and they literally will sit there in painstaking detail, write out everything they ate at every meal and what the ingredients were on that meal. So they would say, I had coffee with cream uh, at breakfast. I had a turkey sandwich with lettuce, tomato and pickles. Um, And so we get this detailed data that shows the interaction or the likelihood that uh, different ingredients were being used together. So you could imagine how uh, Kraft Foods, for example, uh, would really want to understand, um, given all of the ingredients that they had, you know, how were those being consumed? What were the, the driving forces? What were the meal occasions? All of that. Um, so this really keyed me into understanding the basics of consumer behavior. Uh, but this was from around 2002 to 2005. Um, 2005, this thing called the internet came along and I started to be more and more interested in um, some early internet research data. And this company called Comscore started to pop up on my radar in tracking website traffic. Um, and then actually I knew a couple of people who went to the company and uh, I kind of knocked on their doors and said, can you get me an interview? and ended up landing at, at Comscore in 2005. Um, so this was still very much the early days of e-commerce and internet web traffic. So much exploded over the next 10 years in terms of digital consumer behavior, and we were measuring all of that. Um, so at that point, I think I really became a student of digital consumer behavior um, and also how brands and retailers uh, interacted within this new and emerging medium. Um, now, e-marketer specifically, it's really about looking across the entire landscape, understanding what all the researchers are producing and, and what they're saying about consumer behavior and marketer behavior. Um, and that helps you develop a much more round picture of what's actually happening. And I think there's a lot of power in the diversity of inputs that, that I'm receiving uh, at e-marketer because it really helps you understand a truer sense of reality and make I think much more sound predictions on what's going to happen as a result. Fascinating. Someone true to my heart, a thorough e-commerce uh, leader. And, you know, not just me, but the industry appreciates what you do. Cause I know there are hundreds of brands that actually use e-marketer every day in creating their strap plans, AOPs, decision-making. You know, I mentioned, I started using e-marketer at Frito-Lay 
you know, close to eight or nine years ago, and I've been an avid fan. You know, it's followed me in my career journey wherever you've gone, wherever I've gone. But can you explain to us why would a brand use e-marketer given e-commerce and all the huge penetration of e-commerce these days in CPG? And then where do your sources of data come from? You you know mentioned a little bit about dairy and human consumption of food and beverage, and then. What sort of methodologies do you guys use to project, scale your results to be able to conclusively put out white papers and research reports, et cetera, that brands can rely on? Yeah, well, so let's talk a little bit about what clients get with an e-marketer subscription. So um, it's it's an all-in subscription where you get access to all sorts of data uh, from across the industry. You get e-marketers own proprietary forecasts. So when you see those e-marketer charts, they're often our own proprietary forecasts. Uh, but those forecasts are based on looking at a diversity of sources to understand uh, what different research providers are saying. And then uh, we kind of look at those and weigh the, each of the sources accordingly, um, understanding you know maybe some of them are behavioral data, which is often a better source of data, but even behavioral data sources may have certain biases in their data. So how do you account for that? Some may be survey data, which is useful in certain settings, uh, but maybe less so in others. So it's about understanding the data sources, what the data says, and how to weigh those accordingly, um, and having enough information then to produce our own forecasts. Uh, we also look at a lot of public company financials. So that that's data with a, a high degree of certainty around it um, that can help fill in a lot of blanks. So we're taking all of those data sources, putting them together to determine uh, appropriate forecasts on things like digital ad spending, e-commerce growth, retail, um, everything that, that you can sort of imagine under marketing, advertising, and commerce. Um, so, you know, why would a brand use eMarketer today? Uh, I would say there's always been strong use cases to understanding what's going on in marketing and advertising. Uh, so there may be other additional data that they had less use for in the past, like e-commerce. Um, this wasn't necessarily popular with CPG brands uh, 10 years ago. Well, obviously the world is changing very quickly. I don't feel uh, it was popular with CPG brands until March 18th or so. <laughs> right. I mean, I, listen, I've seen it. If I go back five or six years, you'd see some of the CPG leaders starting to ask more questions. You could tell that they were keyed in, but maybe didn't have a great handle on it yet. Um, the Andrew, world has changed. I told you the stories of how I've been in boardrooms where people <laughs> have actually asked me, can we make this go away? Can we slow it down? Why do we have to do it? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, I could write a thesis. And it's important to put it in context, right? It's really easy to ignore something when it's one or 2% of your brand sales. And you say, that's not moving the needle. Um, but if you account for the fact that the e-commerce channel is growing so quickly, even at accounting for one or 2% of sales, it could account for easily 10, 15% of your growth contribution. Um, so you can't ignore that. And especially in a razor thin margin industry like CPG, if you're not aligning around those growth trends, um, you will see those margins get squeezed very quickly. So I think there's, uh, we've hit an inflection point certainly. And I think now most CPGs have gotten religion about the need to do it. I still see, um, you know, a range of how prepared CPG brands are. Some of them are really starting to get it and others uh, are saying, okay, we need to do this, but how? I don't really know where to start. I have been saying for a while, Andrew, that e-commerce is a growth story versus a scale story. Like everybody 
has the right and wants to grow. And pretty much for majority of CPG brands today, almost the entire growth story, depending on the subcategory you do business in, sits within e-com. So let's let's um, talk a little bit about e-commerce in general, because that's where the action is from a growth perspective. You know, the way 2020 went, e-commerce obviously exploded, and there were probably new data sources coming in left and right. Can you share for us? How did you guys cope with that explosion of e-com given it's such a radical shift from the in-store model that was forced by a pandemic? And then how did you all take all that data that came in in e-com and did you end up offering some new services? Like how how did brands really benefit from this swing from an e-marketer perspective? Yeah, well, things changed very fast. So I will say there was already a growth trend here in that, uh, Food and beverage, if you look at our e-commerce categories, was uh, it's one of the most interesting categories because it was both the fastest growing but also lowest penetration category for e-commerce um, in 2019. So already we were starting to see this inflection point and then pan- the pandemic hit and that changed behavior in such a profound way that that just poured gas on the fire, right? So now we're really into this hockey stick kind of growth in e-commerce. Um, what's behind it. I I think of two fundamental aspects to the growth story here. One is what I'll call a switch point. Um, It was a low penetration behavior. You had a lot of people who even as they became e-commerce buyers were not accustomed to, or they, they felt like there was too much friction to ordering groceries online. So they didn't do it before. And now with the pandemic, they had the impetus to do that for the first time because they wanted to stay out of stores or for safety or whatever the reasons. So that was a switch point event where people went from non-e-commerce grocery buyers to now in the market, Um, right? And that's a, a, a precursor for additional behavior. The second piece of this behavior then is habit formation. So once you're in the market, what's the frequency with which you do this? The analogy that I'll make is, Uh, My parents would be the sort of non-e-commerce buyers prior to the pandemic, and then they did it. And now they've done it, you know, several times since the pandemic began. For me, I was in the market as somebody who basically did CPG e-commerce, grocery e-commerce when I came home from vacations a couple times a year, and we had an empty fridge and wanted to pay the premium for convenience of delivery. Um, Well, that two times a year for me has now gone to six or eight times a year. Um, And even as it normalizes, as we come out of the pandemic, if I ultimately kind of lock in at doing this four or five times a year, uh, as opposed to the previous two, you know, that's a hundred or 150% growth rate for me as a consumer. Um, That's a big shift. So, so you have both of these levers really working to grow the market. Um, And that's why I think we've, we've really pulled this category into e-commerce so much faster. We've accelerated, you know, a few years in in just a few months time. So Andrew, clearly just listening to you speak, the amount of data sources you have, which I'm sure you're applying appropriate weights, you're probably one of the best qualified to talk to us about permanent inflection points, right? I read a McKinsey report, I think late summer that talked about overall e-commerce penetration in the US minus gasoline, and on-premise food and um, food uh, delivery services, closer to 37.5% of retail, what was 12 at the beginning of the year and expected to grow one whole percentage point 
year over year over year, which means this year would have ended at 13. Now it's 37.5, but they're saying it'll sell back down once the pandemic is over at 25. You know, so if you just look at pure math, it appears e-commerce has grown up 10 years and six months. And that's the permanent inflection shift. I'd love to get your viewpoint and you know how you guys see it. Um, I will say yes and no. So I believe that we took this huge step up in e-commerce penetration, some categories uh, more than others, but overall it, it's clear that this has been a step change. Um, the mistake that I think some folks will make going forward is that some of the gains that have happened ac across 2020 um, will not be permanent. Just because we've reached this new level doesn't mean that all that behavior gets locked in. I think about all of the, uh, think about a Walmart shopping trip for groceries in the past where people went into the store and now that became a click and collect order. There will probably be more click and collect orders for the average consumer going forward. But a lot of those click and collect trips in 2020 will shift back to being in-store trips in 2021. So I think I would just caution to say, don't assume that we have reached a new permanent plateau from the pandemic that then gets built off of. You're going to continue to have sort of renewed momentum overall in the long-term trajectory while kind of having to give back some of the gains from 2020. So that's why uh, in, a, in a category like food and beverage, we showed 74% growth rate as the fastest growing category in 2020. Um, but we're looking at, at growth rates next year that are in single digits. Now I see potential for uh, some of, for, for that to get revised upwards into double digit growth rates, especially if we see higher levels of ha habit formation. Uh, but I just want to caution people to think that, you know, you have to look at some of this growth over a longer term time horizon and kind of look at the multi-year compound annual growth rate to get an appropriate gauge because that 74% gain is really pulling, you know, some of that future behavior forward and it just can't be sustained fully, um, you know, over the next year or two. Awesome. So uh, let's jump to the kind of services and kind of the white papers and reports y'all put out regularly, which of course I've already declared I've been a frequent user over the course of the years, but can you give us a quick overview of whether retail, whether it's CPG, what are the kinds of data, insights, reports, uh, consumers and users can, uh, uh, especially brand practitioners can find on the e-marketer platform, especially when they first come on board? Because I know there's a ton. Yeah. So if you think about my role specifically as an analyst, and, and there are a number of us at the company, we have different coverage areas. And over the course of the year, we will each write, you know, eight to 10 in-depth reports that are 5,000 plus words um, full of charts and insights. And it will be a mix of third-party research that we think is interesting and, and really sheds light on key consumer behaviors. I'm curious to ask, Andrew, what are you working on these days? Uh, well, so in, in late 2020, my, my reports were Amazon Prime Day, holiday 2020, which included holiday forecast. Um, and social commerce to end the year and then leading into 2021 uh, future of retail, kind of laying out the 10 key trends that will shift retail consumer behavior in 2021. Um, and then on the docket, and I think particularly interesting to uh, the folks who are listening to this podcast is that I'm going to be doing a report on retail media 
Um, I did one in 2019. That's, this is going to be a follow-up. That's my favorite we'll put, topic, Andrew. It's my favorite. It's, it's my favorite topic too. And it get, it's only getting more interesting, right? So it started with Amazon's move into advertising. Um, and then looking at some of the, the next tier of players, what I'm particularly excited and interested in this year is I think that Walmart and Instacart are going to shake up the space in a big way. I think they have completely underappreciated value propositions in terms of what they can build. I, I, the jury is still out in terms of you know how well it will be executed. So it's a big year for them to kind of prove the value of those platforms. Um, but I, I think the, the potential is tremendous. And they even have a big advantage over Amazon, which is that they have massive, massive footprints of in-store data. So yeah. Amazon has you know the beauty of purchase data to target ads to the right people, and then follow that through in closed loop analysis to purchase on Amazon, but Walmart has this across categories and across channels, you know, e-commerce and in-store buying. Um, whereas Instacart is more focused maybe on the CPG opportunity at this point in time. Uh, but the footprint across so many different grocery retailers, I mean, the, the wealth of information that they can bring into their platform. Uh, and by the way, everything I hear is that they continue to stand up that platform at, at record speed. Um, so I think they're going to become a, just a huge player. And then my other upcoming report is uh, is is on grocery e-commerce. So really taking stock of what happened through the pandemic and and what it's going to look like going forward as this becomes a much more habitual behavior for a lot of consumers. You know, I wanted to remind our listeners that uh, when you referred to Instacart way back in September of 2020, we had Josh Ryder who runs partnerships and provides this opportunity for brands on Instacart. And um, I have to agree with you, Instacart has been a surprise, but also a surprise in the positive direction and has provided an opportunity for brands who found everything from home delivery to getting product outs in the hands of the consumers to be a huge welcome for them overall in general. So good for Instacart. And I know they somewhere back in Q4, they raised significant amount of capitals to continue to scale. Um, so I think this episode will be incomplete unless we talk about a few predictions. I know at the time we recorded this episode, 2021 was more of a prediction, but what's your outlook for 2021 in general? And then go forward, right? We've talked about e-commerce penetration growth for most brands sits in e-com these days. And that's what the growth, it's really a story of growth versus scale. But how do you think this is going to go? So I think of 2021 as just a year of massive transformation. Um, we have now had pandemic behaviors set in and completely blow up our expectations in a lot of categories. Um, it's not going to be the same from category to category. I think a lot of behaviors will kind of revert back to their previous trend lines. If you think about something like apparel, I don't think that apparel has hit a fundamentally new inflection point for e-commerce. I think people always had different need states in buying online versus offline. Um, but categories like grocery, uh, I do think have permanently accelerated. Um, I think what we're going to see in terms of broader retail is just a reimagination of consumer expectations um, in what they want in the store experience. I think a lot of old retailers are going to file for bankruptcy. So you're going to see sort of an acceleration of this out with the old and in with the new more new, innovative, uh, frictionless store concepts. You're going to see Amazon Go stores, for example, scale. 
you are going to see Amazon fresh grocery stores and some of the new technologies that they're introducing into that experience to bypass checkout. Um, start to get locked into consumers' minds and understanding what a better grocery store shopping experience can be like. So I think what's going to happen is we're going to see a picture. In 2021, we'll start to see the picture of the future in a more clear way, though it will still take time for a lot of the the rollout to occur over the next few years for the consumer behavior to shift in big ways. So the consumer behavior shifts will mostly be around uh, e-commerce, the, the, but the future, the exciting future that we're going to see will start to manifest at brick and mortar. You know, speaking of that growth and where this goes in the future, et cetera, you know, hacking growth here is not the same as brick and mortar. Clearly the metrics, you know, obviously dollar sales is dollar sales at the end of the day, which is a metric everybody needs to track for the, um, to, to see how the channel is growing in general and for your own brand growth. But what are those demographics that are really the key ones over here? Is it a shift in consumer? Um, is, it, um, is it more like retail media that generates outcomes? And if so, what do you really track in retail media? Is it the investments you make? Because media in general for a long time is one of those territories where the word impressions are cemented itself in Ecom, you can actually track it all the way down to click-through rate, to CVR, to CCVRs and things of that nature, which often can be scary for CMOs. <laughs> so um, I'd love to learn in the e-commerce world what sort of data you all track, and then what would you advise brands? Like, what should they be tracking in return? Yeah, well, let me start at a little bit higher level, and then I'll drill down into things like click-through rate. So at a high level, I would say get a handle on the forecast and where markets are headed. Um, brands need to be aligning themselves confidently around growth opportunities and understanding that growth. It's not just that consumers are moving in a, in a certain direction, but how that affects profits and profitability. Um, so understanding retail media, for example, that's all about profitability in that businesses are starting to realize you can run your core retail business at break even or, or barely above that but because digital advertising is so profitable, if you build a real scaled business there, it totally changes your company's margin profile. Um, and there may be other opportunities that are offshoots of retail businesses because they're powered with such powerful data. Um, so those are things that at a high level, brands need to get a handle on. Um, I would say uh, benchmarks broadly are important to be tracking. So. In the case of food and beverage, like I mentioned, 74% growth in 2020. There's a lot of brands out there that may have seen 30% e-commerce growth and they're patting themselves on their back. And I would say you are underperforming and losing market share and you are missing a huge opportunity because of this underperformance. And if that underperformance continues uh, over successive cycles, your share is just going to get lower and lower. So um, I think a lot of brands can get lulled into the sense of complacency and that they're doing okay because they're seeing big growth numbers, but they're actually doing worse. Um, as for specific metrics in the scary world of e-commerce, I would say, um, you know, when it comes to the big platforms like Amazon and Walmart, yes, you need to learn some new competencies around impressions and click-through rates and things of that nature. I would also say with respect to retail media, um, I go all the way back to, you know, the late, maybe 2007, 2008 period. I remember doing research around click-through rates on display ads online. 
And CPG brands at the time did not want to move their budgets online because they said, well, nobody's buying my goods online. So why should I advertise there? I don't get click-through rates on those ads and people don't go through to buy. Well, that's not how it works for display ads. You know, display ads really are about brand building in that environment. And so uh, by evaluating campaigns based on click-through rates ignores all that branding impact. So you got to measure it a totally different way to understand impact. Um, and there are better and better ways to do that. And that's also why I'm, I'm really bullish on the opportunity for Amazon's DSP, where they're delivering display ads and what will be video and over-the-top ads. Walmart, Instacart are all going to be doing the same thing. So they have the potential to power incredibly valuable branding ad impressions that then you can understand which consumers are reached and where they more likely to purchase those brands in-store or online. That measurement is going to be profoundly impactful in terms of understanding how budgets should get spent for CPG brands. Um, and that's why I think that this is just the beginning of, of a watershed movement in CPG. You know, I feel the arrival of retail media in a significant way has changed the landscape of how to drive conversion, opportunities for drive conversion, and then all those things that you talked about in terms of how the focus on click-through conversion, it, it's a total different ball game. And I feel one of the areas that brands need to really step it up big time, and it's been the story for the last seven or eight years as this happened, is the area of knowledge. Like winning here is not the same as brick and mortar. It's not the same as the early days of digital. And you have to have a deep focus and love for the numbers, no matter how senior you are. And you got to get into the weeds to be successful over here because you're really talking one-on-one with the consumer. Whereas in the offline world, your job was to just put product in a retailer warehouse, whole different ecosystem over here. So can we jump into the type of content you guys make available? You talked about personally working on eight or nine reports a year of 5,000 words, et cetera, with charts, tables, you know. And again, I've used a ton of that stuff from, from marketing, my AOP strap plans, talking to the customer, aka retailer, things of that nature. But I'd love to hear from you. Could you give us a quick overview of all these various forms you put out, like consumer demographics, marketing content, e-commerce penetration? We've talked a lot about that day. What are those major areas that, Pete, that you know, when users come on the platform, what are they really looking for? I can't imagine that it's only e-com. No, it, it's it's a lot of different topics, right? So uh, marketers... No, I, I remember, Andrew, going back to 2011, I was leading kind of the digital presence for Frito in the dollar drug and convenience channel. And I even look at mobile penetration, mobile penetration rates when I would get in front of the Amocos and the Chevrons, which are part of the convenience channel, when we would do AOPs and talk about, hey, consumer demographics are shifting from using desktop to mobile and e-marketer was my reliable source of data. That had nothing to do with e-com. That's right. So it's it's not just e-commerce, right? That's my core function, uh, but it's one of many areas. And by the way, it intersects with so many other areas today. So uh, the bottom line is our, our marketer clients, practitioners, they have questions every day that they're trying to get a handle on a consumer demographic group. They're trying to get a handle on uh, different emerging media trends, uh, which, which media are taking off. People have more users or more time spent big platforms. You know, what's the growth looking like at TikTok and Snapchat these days? Um, what are key marketing and, and ad tech trends trying to get a handle on some of the, 
uh, nuances of ad tech has, you know, it, it's so opaque in so many ways that to a lot of practitioners have, have really tried to understand that space better. And we've helped uh, elucidate that. Um, e-commerce, what are the trends? What can we expect as we get into the holiday season, as we get into next year? Um, how is consumer behavior changing category by category? So there's just so many different questions that all different sorts of practitioners have every day, and we're trying to answer them. Sometimes it's answering them with a simple forecast, just pure data, looking at you know where a market is going. Sometimes it's a little bit more qualitative research insight um, and, and looking at different uh, attributes of how consumers respond to certain things. And then oftentimes it's about really putting what's happening in context. So that's what I really need to focus my attention on as an analyst is, okay, here's the data, but what does it really mean? How, how can you put these numbers in context? How should you think about them? How should you apply them to, you know, some of these bets that you need to make as a company? Um, how can we, you know, we're hearing about this trend that, that seems to be taking off. It's my job to say, yeah, there's something there you may be needing to look at, but don't invest in too much in it right now because the behavior is going to take quite a bit more to actually hit lift off. I think about something like voice commerce, right? We've been hearing about voice now for the last five years. Um, and it's changing some behaviors within the home, like listening to music and setting timers. But people are not really buying through voice in any substantial way today. Um, it may hit an inflection point over the next couple of years. Um, my job to help you understand what the kind of market enablers will be for that to happen. Voice and drones, two of my favorite topics. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. I don't see how voice and drones is really going to drive conversion tomorrow morning or even in the next couple of years because so much of capital is required to make those work in the industry hasn't even gravitated to us thinking about that capital yet. So I feel that's like a long way to go. But, you know, when you have these conversations, you have so much fun. Time flies by and here we are. And uh, here's my last question for you for the day. And uh, that's really one where I love your wisdom on as brands and retailers start getting deeper into this journey of digital that arguably started about a year ago with a much deeper focus and concentration. What's your advice to them? What should they be doing? Besides, of course, looking into e-marketer data and insights. Yeah. So at first I would say align your business with the most important consumer trends, um, not the shiny objects. I, I feel like too much mind space goes into the shiny objects. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have some knowledge about things like voice, voice commerce or be able to envision this future, but be able to put that future, you know, five to 10 years out to where you're just understanding the direction, but not having to invest resources in something like that today, because that's not where the behavior is. It's also easy to overlook some behaviors that maybe became trendy five years ago, but now they're hitting scale and they're actually driving a huge portion of growth for you. So click and collect would be one that has been around for a while, but that's really hit an inflection point in usage to the point where it's accounting for almost 10% of e-commerce dollars. And it's where a disproportionate amount of growth is. So how are you aligning around that trend, which is really important? Um, second, I would say, watch the market leaders really closely and try to understand and unpack their strategies. Um, to, th that's going to show you where things are going. So when you see Amazon getting into retail media and then seeing some others follow suit, that should tell you something. Um, when you see Nike, for example, shifting their business so dramatically to D2C 
and cutting off their retail distribution partners and suppliers, um, that should tell you something about the future of, of their business in, in apparel retail. Um, when you see Nestle acquiring Freshly, you know that's probably an indicator of some business strategy. So there's all of these things, I think, really pay close attention, not just to, to, to the news and don't just chase the news, but figure out what it really means. Because a lot of these smart companies have a smart strategy behind it. And the extent to which you understand that, I think the better off your brand will be. Um, and that goes into my last point, which is just simply understand the why behind, behind a, a specific tactic. Um, it's not that a tactic is happening. A lot of times you see marketers just say, people are all doing this tactic. We need to do this. Well, don't just do this because as marketers, you should be lining up against the biggest opportunities unless you can articulate why that tactic is going to drive leverage for your business. You shouldn't be doing it um, or appreciate exactly the important components of it. I think about uh, Pepsi got a lot of press for the snacks.com website and going D to C. Now, I don't think that is ever going to drive more than a percentage point or two of their sales. And that do it so maybe. It, it, it's going to be it's going to be a rounding error in sales. So why would a smart company like that be doing it? Well, it's about getting closer to your best customers. It's about experimenting with different assortments and different uh, flavors and varieties of different products. Um, and it's also a way to connect with these consumers and get some first party data that then you can feed into your advertising ecosystem, find lookalike models and things like that. So you actually can do better targeted advertising. So it ends up becoming a strategic play as opposed to driving sales volume, which is usually how we think about um, the decisions that CPG brands make. Well said, Andrew. So I want to remind all our listeners, you can find all our content on cpgguys.com. If you're looking for the podcast, we would love for you to go over to tinyurl.com slash podcast and find us on the Apple platform. And please do give us a rating and a review. Tell us what you like or don't like and how we're doing and what you'd like to listen to from us next. Andrew, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on the show, share your views with us, but do tell our users if they want to find more about the eMarketer offerings, where does one go? eMarketer.com, very simple. Um, You can find out if your company is a subscriber um, and if not, we can uh, help you out if you want to learn more. Um, And you can find me on LinkedIn, Andrew Lipsman, or on Twitter uh, at A Lipsman. Thank you, folks. That is a wrap for this episode. And we'll catch you soon on another episode of the CPG Guys. And I promise you, Peter will be back. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability 
or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.